0: And we're live with our 129th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson, at CKTricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. We're excited to be here. I'm excited that Ken's back. Um, you know, we, we, we had a Corsi and Logic Kill on last week uh, to talk about I remember PHP and all the crazy things that happened with the PHP backdoor. Um, but this week we're back to our regular scheduled programming. We've got Ray Bango that's joining us. Um, we're gonna get into some uh, developers slash security and uh, you know all sorts of things. Ray works at Vericode, but we'll do formal introductions in a minute. Um, Besides that, I did want to give a plug to the OWASP Top 10 survey again, before we, we jump into the topic this week. Brian mentioned it a few weeks ago when we had him on, I'll um, post the Twitter link here for it. Uh, if you haven't taken the opportunity to put your thoughts in, please do so. Uh, the survey is going to determine what two of the topics on the OWASP Top 10 are, or two of the risks are. So. They need our feedback and go fill it out. Um, you know, if you, if you really want to uh, screw with the system, go fill it out multiple times, I guess, right? Like, I'm not sure what sort of uh, preventions, like auto preventions they have on the Google form, but hey, you know, give it a shot. Let's see, let's see what happens. So if you really like, I don't know, one of those CWEs, go for it. I guess I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't promote abuse of the process, but hey, you know, i <laughs> not.
0: That immediately took a security-focused
1: uh, turn. <laughs> yeah, it did. It is. But it's the OS top 10. So um, out, outside of that, uh, we don't have really any announcements right now. Uh, just kind of waiting to see what this summer holds for, from a conference perspective before
0: we start traveling
1: again, right? Um, yeah. Unless, Ken, you've got something else that's on your plate. We'll just go ahead and jump into it.
0: No, I think uh, you've captured it uh captured it perfectly. So, uh, yeah. Um, do you want to introduce Ray or should I? I mean, go for it. You. Go for it. Well, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, Ray, you, you've been quite an active uh, uh, speaker, a public face, uh, do, have done a lot of evangelism. Um, you're currently at Veracode. Uh I was happy because you are connected to Dave Ferguson, who has been on the podcast and is like one of Seth and I's We've been friends for, I don't know, 12 years, something like that. So maybe 11, something like that. So uh, yeah, it's just, it's exciting to have you on. It's exciting to hear your perspective. I know we're going to, we're going to get into it, but um, yeah, if you, uh, if you want to just to start out, want to say hi and maybe tell uh, everyone a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, I was very I was very happy when Dave uh um, you know introduced me to you all and and the fact that you gave me a shot to to come on your show was great. So I appreciate that as well. And um so yeah, I, my name is Ray Bango. Uh that's with an E. I want to make sure because everybody always spells it as an A. And it's because it's short for Reynaldo, actually. So um and of course the last name is the unique last name, B A N G O. Yeah, I've heard all the jokes already. So, you know. <laughs> um but you know i i yeah i've been in this industry for for quite a bit of time i think i'm going on 31 years now and uh just recently transitioned I'd, I'd like to say recently even though it's been 3 3 years i guess since i transitioned into the security space but you know the majority of the time i was doing software development or developer advocacy or something in that fashion it's it's you know back way back in 1989 i just fell in love with programming that's the that was the time that I said wow I just love to sling code and it was funny because I remember back and I was telling somebody about this and they looked at me with this really like weird face like I'm a weirdo and I said you know one I remember one day a long time ago I I was sitting there and said man one day I'm gonna die I'm not gonna be able to code anymore and (laughs) they looked at me kind of like how you're looking at me right now like okay yeah you're weird you know but uh, that's how much I loved coding, and and you know it's uh, and and to an extent that's how I feel about security now, and that's one of the reasons I'm happy to be in security. It's reinvigorated my my love for technology, um, even though it's a weird dichotomy because te- the technology that I'm dealing with, I have to try to protect it in some fashion. But ultimately, it's it's this new thing that I'm exploring and I'm tinkering with so many different facets of it, and so it was interesting that when I jumped into security, everybody thought I was immediately going to go into the AppSec world. Oh, I'd been a developer for so long. I'll go into AppSec. And I said, no, 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 no. I want to explore everything. And so I've been exploring a bunch of stuff. Vericode is, um, you know, I, I got to meet Chris Weisopel, uh at, uh, when did I meet him first? I met him when I was at Microsoft. Uh, I spent 10 years at Microsoft and I got a chance to meet Chris. Um, just more because of business dealings. Uh Veracode wanted to partner more closely with Microsoft, and I was more on the uh, DevOps and DevSecOps stuff. And so that's how we kind of met. And we stayed in contact. I got to meet him in person at Black Hat. He signed my, uh, my Cult of the Dead Cow book. Let me pull it up. There it is. Oh, yeah, nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, wait, wait.
2: And, and officially signed by him, Death Veggie, uh, Dildog, and Joseph Men, the author of the book. And so, you know, I kind of fanboyed on Chris a little bit and uh, we stayed in touch. And then, you know, eventually they, they really wanted to make some, uh, some stronger uh, inroads with the developer community. I had that background and um, I had the, the background as well in developer advocacy and developer relations. And so it kind of worked out. So now I'm at Vericode trying to build, um, build more awareness about secure coding principles. Uh, get developers more in touch with secure practices. And uh, and then, of course, try to bring VeriCode into that conversation because I think it's a, criti- it's a critical uh, conversation to have with things like the PHP uh, issue that we saw yeah. and SolarWinds and the Microsoft Exchange stuff. And then even back several years ago with the Equifax breach, all those were in some fashion software related. So that's where I'm hopefully I can help with that.
1: Yeah, that's, that, that, that's great. And I do want to dig into a little bit of the development background because, I, I, I mean, you're coming new into the security space. I mean, new, you know, the last couple of years. Um, the, you've got a, quite an extensive history on that side of things working for Microsoft. And it looks like you were, you know, you were doing jQuery for a while, which is, you know, one of the underpinnings, right? Anybody that's doing any Ajax or any, any JavaScript coding within the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. has obviously used jquery like you know how did that how did your early career start how did you get involved with some of those projects and then we'll talk about the transition to security because that's really interesting as well especially at the age right like you know where you've already you already are an established developer making that transition is not something that i see a lot of well i see people do but not as many you know once they are established so so anyway, so let's start with your early like career, like especially the jQuery stuff. That just was super interesting to me.
2: <laughs> no problem. And so, you know, again, I started back in 1989 and I was programming on MS-DOS. And so Windows mm-hmm. Windows 3.1, I think Windows three one one was the first version of Windows that I actually said, oh, I'm going to embrace this because it looked kind of cool. And so imagine coding and clipper and dbase and fox pro and i'm dating myself and i don't know if you know so you I, only... I laugh
1: because i recognize all those ken yeah. won't but i do so yeah yeah that's yeah. it's all good yeah
2: and then eventually you know focusing more on the client server space and and this is all before the internet there was no and if you were connected i mean you might have worked for a bank and then had isdn lines or t1 lines that connected you know between in individual facilities, but the concept of the internet was more of a still an academic or research type of thing. It was it wasn't the World Wide Web that we see, we use day in and day out now. And so, the concept of these internet connected inter interconnected devices that we now take for granted that just wasn't it. So to me, it was all very monolithic development. Even though it was client mm-hmm. server, I still see it as monolithic because yes, we had separation of concerns. But they weren't going out to, across the world unless you explicitly said, "I am going to set up some form of dedicated trunk, dedicated line to communicate with some facility." And so you know, back then, I was doing Power Builder development, which was a uh, it was a competitor to Visual Basic, and that's where I cut my teeth on object oriented programming. I loved doing that; that was really fun. Uh, with some high end relational database systems like Sybase and DB Two and uh, Oracle. And then this thing of the w- the web came out and the web and the web. And I'm like, all right, what is this web stuff? And as I dug into it, I actually, I loved it. I loved, even though it stateless, it was weird because I was so used to this, you know, stateful environment where things were managed. Switching over was a complete paradigm shift to me in terms of how I developed, because I was very used to traditional waterfall environments. There were no mm-hmm. agile, wasn't a thing. And so switching to the web uh, was was a challenge because you didn't have state management, at least not really good state management. And then on top of that, the companies that you were working with, the, they they were like, no, 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 no. There's no discovery phase. There's no two week discovery phase to do this. We're going to tell you what we want and just go out and build it and and you know let it stick. And we're, I'm like, what is this? This craziness. And so, um, you you know, eventually I embraced cold fusion, and cold fusion okay. was was, yeah. you know, it was it was the thing. It was awesome. And it had provided that level of state management and, you know, session variables and things like that. And and really good connect- connectivity to the high end relational database systems that I had been accustomed to. And then as my career progressed in cool Fusion, and I knew a lot of those the folks from a layer corporation because they were part of PowerSoft and C4. So I got to meet him and I think that's where I started building a lot more into the community aspect of things where I was a member of Team Allaire, which was kind of like an MVP program. And I wanted to do more presentations and I started teaching cold fusion development to people. So there was always this underlying tone of, I wanna help the community in some fashion. I wanna be involved with the community. And then uh, jQuery, well, Ajax started coming around. I kept hearing this buzz, Ajax, Ajax, Ajax. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, new technology you're going to learn, you know, because I got to stay on top of the wave. And I kept seeing Ajax specifically ter- coined in newspaper articles. Yes, newspaper I read newspapers. Articles. That's how I found That's how I found my job. We're just,
1: back we're then. just dating the podcast today. That's how we're doing it. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah.
0: Actually, this is kind of, uh, it's almost, and I mean this in a, in, in a cool way. It's like almost yeah. like a watching technology Iterate and unfold as you're telling yeah. this the, the story of the technologies you worked on. It's interesting to watch all that sort of, yeah. yeah, to already hear the progression in it and almost like a timeline. It's very interesting. Did you uh, did you do any work with Cold Fusion Security? Uh, no, that was just it. The only security I
2: ever did with Cold Fusion was one, just make sure the server was patched, but two. There was a library by a, a person. His name is Pete Freitag, and he's still he's still very prominent in the cold fusion community. But Pete was one of the first people that I ever saw that was that had taken an interest in uh, security for cold fusion. Now, mind you, my I had my my blinders on, so my world revolved around cold fusion and security, in the internet was like, all right, I, I don't know what that is. I just I just wanted to build apps. And so Pete, though, uh, was really focused on building uh, libraries and little, little libraries that would help you sanitize inputs. And that was the first time I actually even started sanitizing inputs. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Let me, let me make sure we don't get this cross-site scripting thing that he's talking about. I don't want it to happen. And I didn't really know about SQL injections at that point. I, just, I, knew, I knew Pete and I respected him. And I knew that if he's thinking about it, let me just make sure I plug in his library to sanitize some of the inputs. But that was the extent of it. Mm -hmm. and uh you know with the ajax thing the the the, when i dug into it i and i remember buying headfirst ajax from who's it o'reilly i looked at him like this is javascript this is just javascript (laughs) what is it and and but i also remember that uh front-end development was a real drag it was a, a real pain and uh back then it was i6 i think i think i6 was still was it yeah, I think so. And then um, you had Firefox. Chrome hadn't been announced yet. And so there was still some challenges because you still had these two different browsers and they were competing for attention. And uh, ultimately, you had Firefox trying to be the standards bearer. You had Internet Explorer, which had some uniqueness to it and some challenges. And I didn't want to deal with that. I'm like, I don't want to deal with the dumb. I know. And so... I started digging into libraries and I found um, a, a bunch of them, OpenRICO, Kit, Dojo, uh, and a Prototype. And of course, Prototype had their UI, Scriptaculous library. I and I tried all of them. Um, I remember with Dojo and I, and I got to meet uh, some of the leads for some of these projects. OpenRICO, first of all, um, was dying. So I just said, I'm not gonna deal with that. And Moki Kit, same thing. So that left Dojo prototype and there was one other one. I dug into Dojo and I'll never forget that, you know, having come from a very community oriented environment where to me supporting people was such a big deal. Hearing somebody say, Listen, if you want to learn about the the, the tool, go read the source code. I'm like, I don't have time. <laughs> I, what? I don't have time for that. <laughs> I'm not going to read through all the source code when there should be at least some kind of API documentation and some kind of, you know, uh, outline of what the methods are in the library to use it. And so, no, I said, no, no, that's, I don't have time for that. And then I dug into prototype a little bit and prototype was okay, but prototype was very terse. And there was something about it that just didn't, I didn't gel with I couldn't do it. And then this little known library jQuery was out. Oh, And then of course, MooFX, this was before MooTools, by the way, MooFX, okay. Um jQuery was there and I started, I kind of gravitated to jQuery. I remember sending a message out to John Rezig and he replied and he, mm-hmm. solved, he solved the problem. And so that just, from there, I just fell in love with jQuery and really got entrenched in the community. The deeper I got into the project, the, the more I loved it, the more I loved the API and the, the really con, uh, concise API terminology. And it just made coding in JavaScript so much easier. And it was actually pleasant, believe it or not. I, I know some people would be like, blasphemy, you know? <laughs> JavaScript's horrible. No, no, JavaScript was actually really nice in the jQuery. And, and John, was, John was fantastic. And John eventually wanted to create a, uh, a team around it <laughs> because he saw the community growing. I mean, the community was really rapidly expanding. And John and I had been having a lot of conversations around how do we position jQuery, not only within the open source world, but how do we also help folks that are enterprise developers embrace it and use it? And that was a challenge because, you know, you, there's a different mindset in the enterprise space when you are using software. Uh, apart from all the compliance guidelines that you have in the enterprise space, there's just standards that uh, enterprise developers kind of go by, and especially in terms of support. So I'll never forget He and I, I told him, he he said, Bank of America wants to use it. uh, But, you know, I said, well, then let's get on a phone call with him. He's like, what? Phone call? I go, yeah, let's just get on a phone call and let's talk to them and let's figure it out. And we did. We got on a phone call with Bank of America and we helped them go from, let's say, point A to point Z on a specific problem. And they were happy and they became like one of the first one of the early adopters of jQuery in the enterprise space. And I think that's when John realized, okay, we need to formalize this. We need to have a formal structure for the project. We need to get a bunch of people who are really great at community and support and development involved. And so uh, he asked me to head up their developer relations aspect of the project. And that's kind of where I really took off on developer relations. I realized, wow, this is a thing. Mm -hmm. Getting, you know, Getting in touch with the community and building it and helping people be successful, that's a thing. And, you know, you, talk, you hear about Guy Kawasaki being an evangelist and all this stuff. I didn't know who Guy Kawasaki was. I just knew that I just wanted to help people out. And that was the first, my, I'm going to call it my first real exposure to, uh, uh, to developer relations.
0: Uh-huh. And I don't like,
2: and notice I like, I I call it developer relations. I don't like using developer evangelism. That's a negative connotation to it, you know? So.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's interesting kind of that. Um, well, I mean, your, I mean, your path into the developer relations, but it's also interesting how, how much of that plays into developer security relations as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Ken and I have talked about this time and time again as like, application coming from application security right like i did development but it's been 20 years right since i've really you know slung code just code for a living Mm -hmm. and um like how much of our our jobs is dependent on building a relationship with the developers so they trust us when we come up and we're like hey we found this crazy thing right like I, i you know I'm not gonna tell you how to solve it, but I wanna work with you to solve it, right? Like the 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 whole antagonism between security and development has just been a, a monkey on security's back for so many years because of how I, I just how they've been beat over the head with security, right? Like I I get it from a developer perspective, someone walking into my cubicle. I'm in the middle of trying to build a feature and they say, no, no, guess what? For the next three months, I need you to go back through all of your old code and put in a validation library. And you're like, okay, but then I'm going to get fired because I didn't build my new feature. Right? Like this, this whole antagonism that exists there is a, is a hard, hard thing to, to overcome. And I mean, it sounds like it's very similar to hey, building out a new API. You've got jQuery, people want to use it. You've got a, introduce them to it some way in a way or in a way that's palatable to them. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- you hit it, you
2: hit it around the head and there is, there's always going to be this tension. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think you can ever get rid of it. And, and it's because you have competing, uh, competing needs. And so one of the things that as a developer, I, 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 I always say this, that I I was never one that looked at security as like a first class citizen, I just didn 't uh-huh. um, my focus was on building apps, I had a business requirement, I had a timeline, and I needed to get it out the door and I think that 's a very common scenario for a lot of development teams, yeah and so security isn 't their their first priority and then you have the the security team and and you know i i 'm fortunate now that i 'm on the other side i 'm on the security side now, so i 'm seeing their pain points and having spoken to so many folks in the security industry and seeing the, the I'm going to call it the pain and suffering they've had to go through uh, in locking down not only the network side of things, their network infrastructure, the IoT aspects of it. I mean, I'm not even taking into consideration ICS and SCADA stuff. I mean, that's a whole different world there. But then you, you, know, you have this whole new endpoint now where threat actors are seriously considering how do we how do we break into systems that are becoming much more resilient on the infrastructure side and uh, one of the things that i having worked at microsoft i was very fortunate in the sense that i got to see the evolution of cloud resiliency mm-hmm. and as companies migrated there to the cloud you could see how that network infrastructure if it was done correctly if it was set up properly and you You had somebody there to help you down the path or had the understanding of how to set up a really strong cloud infrastructure. It was pretty resilient. Mm -hmm. Why? Because now you're offloading a lot of the, um, I'm going to call it the administrative aspects of it, off to your vendor. The patch management of the OS, uh, the network switching and management of those types of things. Those are, you don't have to run a data center anymore. Yeah, That data center is run for you. And so, what ends up happening is that the administrators, uh, in, in some sense, I, I'm not saying their jobs are any easier, but they're it's different. Instead of having to focus on, oh my god, I got to worry about this specific piece of hardware that just died, you know, now they got to worry about making sure that all the configurations they need are in place to prevent um to prevent access to it so when you hear about leaky buckets for example like aws buckets or amazon you know or A- azure azure databases that are left open that's just misconfigurations yep. and to me that's that can happen to anyone uh, unfortunately because even the most well-rounded and mature companies have have had those issues happen but if you if you build it right for the most part it's going to be resilient so what that does is forces threat actors to look at different avenues. And what, what does that mean? Let's look at your applications. And the, as I got into exploring bug bounties and reading some of the reports, it is incredible how these hunters are so clever in the way they get into systems. I mean, you look at some of the things they do, they're, they're really pushing the limits. And if they're doing it, that means that other threat actors are more than capable of doing that. And that's where the applications become that new attack vector that needs to be protected. Well, the issue is, and this is why security folks get all the jiggity about this type of stuff. It's that if the coders aren't thinking in terms of security, if there's nothing in the pipeline that is securing their code bases or analyzing their code bases, whether it's static analysis, dynamic SCA, whatever it is, then you're leaving a massive hole you're you're leaving you have the potential to let somebody right into your back door mm-hmm. and that's that's the that's the issue that keeps a lot of these security practitioners up at night and so to your point there has to be a change in the way we think about the relationships between software development and IT dev the devops and devsecops there has to be this middle ground uh, which i like to call security champions people who can bridge the conversations between the two
1: yeah yeah, I, yeah. You're. I mean, you're. You're absolutely right. You know, as far as like bridging that gap and that and and that was going to be my next question to you is kind of what do you recommend? Like, how are you going about building that community um, or that sort of relationship? Um, I know in your role at Vericode, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if like maybe if you want to talk a little bit about that, like what exactly you're doing um, and how that feeds into it. Um, since I see that, that relationship normally is very much mm-hmm. a, a kind of an internal organization battle, for lack of a better term, right? Like, it shouldn't yeah. be a battle, but it's, it's a different relationship because it is internal to an org as far as those competing priorities. And, right. yeah, the, the loudest fit. So what are you doing at Vericode, right? Like, how, how do you see that working? What is it that, like, what are the recommendations that you have for building out something like the Security Champions
2: that's a great question. And so, you know, my being so new to Vericode, the first thing I'm trying to do is get my head around this, this massive scope of products that we have, and, and they're world class products. And so, uh, but part of that, part of my role, and this was really important to me when I joined Vericode, was I wanted to make sure that I, I was able to solve developer problems first. It's mm-hmm. less about, for example, positioning Vericode products. It is about solving developer problems. And that's my, that's always been my core focus. No matter which company I've been in and whatever role I've been in, I try to lead with more with solving the problem versus selling a product because it's, if the product doesn't fit, what's the point of having that conversation? And not only that developers are smart, you're leading with a product. They will never ever listen to you. And yeah. so my goal ultimately is to solve developer problems. And i I guess I'm going to I'm in an enviable position in that sense, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a sales quota. I don't have to worry about that. I just go and I, I like to call it shaking hands and kissing babies. I like to go out there and talk to developers and see what's important to them. Now in this, in this COVID world, unfortunately, you know, a lot of that shaking hands and kissing babies has kind of been limited. So uh, I'm, I'm ramping up right now on getting, uh, getting more exposure with virtually like this podcast is a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of bridging that security gap that we were just talking about, one of the things that I, I, I feel is that you need to identify people who have, the, who have the ability to speak on both sides, to speak from both lenses if possible. So either you're going to identify somebody who already has a passion for both development and security, and that's possible. It's harder. It's not an easy thing. Um, but you can certainly find those folks who naturally gravitate to new and exciting areas. And that's, you, you two are examples of that. I think I'm an example of that. It's just, I, I gravitated to a new area. I wanted to explore something different. And I felt like I can be that bridge between uh, two different, two distinct communities. Now, the second, uh, the second way of, of really thinking about this is identifying people who might have an interest that you want to kind of educate, get them up to speed and make an investment in. Now this requires a company to say, I want to make an investment in security. And I want to make it by getting a couple of people to really, um, to get the training they need to be effective in things like the, the secure development lifecycle, uh, to get a training in uh, in some of the security tooling out there, in uh, whether it's an open source fuzzer, or whether it's a you know a mature product like like Veracode's you know static analysis tool yeah that's a that's a little sales <laughs> thing in there you know but um, you know the point is I think that there are people who can be effective communicators that can understand the, the the unique business needs of each individual group and by getting them the proper training they can be that bridge in between the development team and the security team. It, it is a training issue more than, than anything else. Clearly, you have to have somebody who's conversational. I think. I think that's an important aspect, somebody who can actually understand the business needs and be able to verbalize them in a way that both groups can effectively understand that, but you have to lead with training. I, I couldn't go right now. Like if, if you had asked me three years ago, hey, can you, can you go talk about AppSec to somebody um, on a development team? I'd be like, no, not really. And I definitely couldn't have it with the IT group. Now I feel a lot more confident. I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not a 20 year expert, for example, like you've been around for a long time. There's so many things that you're like, I'm going to have to lean on you sooner or later. I'm going to get a (laughs) separate set of separate call with you two and, and then learn from you. But the point is that there's things that I can, there's conversations I can have now at a different level that I couldn't have three years ago. Yeah. And And then the other part is that I think we need to start looking at educational institutions, one of the things that I'm seeing is that a lot of computer science students are coming into the workforce with no understanding of secure coding at all. And oh yeah, and that's another that's another big issue because this, this is that's the new generation of defenders. So uh, you know, I hopefully I can be around for another twenty years. That'd be great. Will I be around for you know doing this? I don't know. I can't say. But there's a whole new generation right behind me that are, they're chomping at the bit to get their hands on, you know, source code to build really great systems. Wouldn't it be great if we took the time to teach them how to build secure systems? And we're not doing that. You know, I was talking to Ming Chao, who's in a, a, he's a, he's a teaching professor at Tufts. And that's one of the, the things that he's actually trying to promote within Tufts, teaching his students application security. And he sees the challenges that uh, that academia has because professors don't they don't have the skills to teach that. And it's not a it's not a dig at the professors, it's not a dig at the, the institution. It just hasn't been something that's been a priority. And I think there's been this challenge between corporate America and academia to, uh, on who is responsible for teaching secure coding principles to the new folks that are coming into the industry. And so if you think about it. You have academia, which is, hasn't had an incentive at the, yet to do that. And then you have corporate America, who sees security and, to some extent, the software development as a cost centers. So yeah. they don't have that incentive to say, I'm going to invest $10,000 to send you to a SANS course to learn secure coding challenge stuff. Uh, it's, that's, a, that's a big deal. So how do you, well- how do you rationalize that?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I was just going to add to that point, right? I mean, Ken and I have both done a whole slew of developer, like secure code trading, right? And mm-hmm. it's always been through the corporate side of things. Yep. And, you know, part of that has been, if I look at the drivers behind it, um, it's very rarely that the company's like, hey, we're going to invest in our people about, you know, learning how to secure code. It's, Oh, we have to comply with PCI or mm-hmm. uh, you know, FF, you know, all these or FDIC regulations. So we have to train our developers in secure coding. It's it's almost like industry mm-hmm. as a whole is recognizing it, but not necessarily the companies themselves. And it, I, I mean, we've got Derek who's commenting on our Slack channel as well. About like the the whole educational background point that you're bringing up, because I, I mean, I think about it, but I you know, I got my CS degree so many years ago. Mm-hmm. I remember I took a security course, but the security course was basically um, a little bit of how do you implement encryption, and oh, let's go like look at a firewall. that That was realistically the the whole of this security course that I took. And it wasn't even a required course. It was an optional course for me. Um, yep. And I mean, it's just kind of sad that it hasn't progressed much past that. Like right. there's been so much, or so many attempts in the industry to to reach out to developers, right? But I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if we're just doing it in the wrong way, right? Like encouraging them to come to DEF CON or to the B-Sides conferences or OWASP or whatever else. Ken, yeah. um, I,
0: mean, can I, I looking- feel like I, yeah. No, I was just Go gonna ahead. say like, I, <clears throat> Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, I, I think because I, I was actually just last night having having this thought uh, effectively, unless you're your professor is Brian Glass, you know, how many of these professors in academia come from come with the experience of it's not just it's not just like, here's some source code review, secure code review technique or some dynamic assessment technique, or if you're writing code, these are the specific vulnerabilities that you have to be concerned with, or here's what you'll see in this one type of language or framework. It's not just the materials that you know organizations like OWASP produce or just individual researchers. It's literally like a combination of taking all of these things and then practically applying them time after time after time against different technology stacks against different situations. It's not something that can be easily obtained in terms of a knowledge base. And then that informs your approach and your methodology um, to whether it's writing secure code, reviewing for secure code flaws, whether it's building libraries into applications that that are security centric, all of those things like it to, to, to basically inform and educate on a, on a, on an actual like practical, um, helpful level. There's, there's, I feel it's, it would be almost impossible for all of these professors to have this background. How could they, they're not, they're not, this isn't their job. Mm -hmm. Um, so then I guess the, the solution, um, I don't know the solution, but maybe it, maybe it involves more um, solicitation of, of uh, input from, from folks that do that yeah. and then applying that on a broader scale. So I don't know the answer, but I, I do think that we're looking to the wrong people to inform their, you know, the professors themselves, uh, their students yeah. on this it's, topic.
2: And, and I agree with you. It's a, it's a, it's a, hard, it's a hard thing. Um, you know, a lot of these professors... They have their established curriculum. They're going to go through the, their process. They've invested a lot of their own time to understand that curriculum and be able to teach it in an effective way. If you've ever taught courses, teaching is hard. Okay. I I did like I said before, I did training for a layer and I had to go through a five-day cold fusion up, you know, getting up to speed to cold fusion course and teaching that. And those five days were hard. And so I'm thinking about a college professor who's diving into some very terse topics and trying to distill it in a way that these these very young minds are they they need to grok it and they need to pass it and they, and and hopefully ingest it so that they can use it in the workforce. And it's not an easy thing, but that has to be. I, I do think there has to be something added to curriculums that complement the ex- existing computer science uh, tracks. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to blow up like the, the, the current track. I think some of those current tracks are really great, you know, and there's some great schools that produce awesome uh, computer science students. Uh, I think there should be complementary courses to it that leverage, let's say, professionals like yourselves to go in and maybe you're an adjunct professor and you go in and you teach these aspects because this is where security is coming up. Uh, this is where we need to. I guess we need almost need to instill in students that security is a first class citizen in your computer science education. It has to be because. And then you know what? We have to leverage these breaches as a learning opportunity. I don't, I don't like breaches. I mean, I hate breaches and leaks and all that. I, it's you know clearly, I don't want my data floating around there. But it is what it is. I, and shouldn't we capitalize on that and say? you know, solar winds was horrible. How do we fix that? How do we yeah. make it better? And how do we make sure that the new defenders that are coming in, whether they're on the coding side or they're on the infrastructure side or whether they're even on the management side, you know, you have uh, IT professionals that come out that are more on the management side. How do we train them in security in a way that they can make effective decisions to prevent a solar winds or prevent uh, like if they're contributing to open source, prevent a PHP supply chain attack like that. How do we do these things that make people more aware of it? We're very fortunate, I think, that in some open source projects, we have people who have a, a different level of maturity. Like in the PHP project, that's a very mature project. They're going to have certain guidelines that are going to protect them. In, but you look at what happens with NPM all the time. NPM is still... It's it, even though people see think Node is is this massive mature product, it's it's really new. I remember when Node was announced, and I remember when npm was created, and that's what ten years, I think. And so ten years in the internet space, it, yeah, it may seem like an eternity, but in in maturity, it's it's still growing and it's still adapting and. And so we, we have to think about that. And supply chain, even though people have been calling out supply chain attacks for a very long time, my, my good friend, Adam Baldwin, who was, um, he was uh, the head of the Node Security Project, yep. then CTO of NPM. And now, well, then he went to GitHub. And then now he's over at, at Auth0. He, he had been calling out uh, supply chain attacks within NPM for years and said, yep. this is going to happen this is going to happen and it did and i think part of that plays into the fact that we're not teaching enough about security we're not making that security uh uh, mandate and a lot of the people who are building open source software now are young developers they're the ones who are picking up that mantle and saying they feel liberated more power to them i mean I, i i'm jealous actually i'm jealous that they come in and they didn't have to scrounge around and hope that somebody would give them a copy of their software. And, you know, they have all this free stuff to them, but they don't have a lot of the secure coding principles that are going to make sure that those projects that they're putting out are, are built in a way that's not going to cause problems. And then the other problem is people just adopt software like, like nothing. They just put it into their stack and say, oh, it's open source. It must, have been, it must be vetted. You know, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah. No, (laughs) you know, uh, NPMs and and NPM and I'm not picking an NPM by any means. Uh, NPM is a, it's, it's a fantastic repository for great packages, but there's so much stuff in there. And and I've seen so many developers just do arbitrary NPM install and the same with, you know, same with PyPy and the same with, you know, Ruby gems and things like that. People just assume that because it's in this repository that it's safe yeah, and it's, it's not,
1: Well, and that was always, I I mean, that was one of the things I always like to bring up when we were talking secure coding Mm -hmm. with, with developers specifically was NPM in the example there, Mm -hmm. you know, I I mean, I think they're up to something like 11 to 1200 new packages a day, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's great if you, if you're building a package and you want to get it out to people. But then at the time, I mean, this was, you know, a few years ago, Adam and his team left right before they you know, when it was the node security project. Right? There's like three or four of them, and there's 600 new packages a day, right? I'm mm-hmm. like, guys, there's no way that these three or four guys can can possibly analyze all these projects for security flaws, for takeover issues, for everything else that's in there, even for back doors, right? doors right? And I know part and GitHub, you know they're tooling a lot of that, but still it's I, I mean it's it's a, it's almost an impossible problem to solve from a a strict, like you'd have to have 100 people plus looking at packages and looking at code all day long. And hence the need for tooling and other things, like we can get into that discussion. But you're absolutely right. Like it's a, it's, a, it's an issue. And unless the developers recognize it, they're mm-hmm. just gonna keep doing what they've always done, which is NPM install and off off to the races, right? Oh, yep. great. You know, I need to do a left pad. Is there an NPM package for that? Right. What happens right. when that package just disappears? Oh crap. Half the internet just went down. Right. That, yeah. that kind of thing is, is, is going to become more and more prevalent without some yep. sort uh, of education. So, yeah.
2: You know, what I really liked was something that node source did and, and I know this has been done before. They're not they're unique, but uh, at least with the node community, this was, this was unique. And they, they came up and said, we're going to create these vetted packages. And then you can depend on that. And that was really important because I, they, this was a reputable company saying, we're going to make the investment in in analyzing the code bases of these really top tier packages that everybody's dependent on. And if you rely on our, our, our repo, our package manager, you'll be safe. And that's a big deal. And I know Microsoft has tried to do that. And Google, Google's tried to do that. All the, all these top companies are doing things like that. I mean, there's, and there's a rationale for it. Uh, unfortunately some of those packages they're they're private bottom line is you have to pay it's a pay to play type of thing yeah so um but this is this is why i think we need to make sure the security is taught early and often so that when you go into any type of effort you're going in with a security mindset that complements your coding skills you're going in thinking i need to make sure that i vet this i my wife calls me borderline paranoid right now because anytime I install anything, I vet it. I, it's like I, I, I nothing goes on my computer that I haven't really looked at. Like I, I, I do, I do some pen testing and Cherry Trees is my my favorite note taking stuff app. And so yeah, I made sure I looked at Cherry Tree and I'm like, all right, when was the last time it was updated? Is this frequent? Who else is using it? I, I go through all the process, and that's just to install an app on my computer. Now, imagine that you're taking a dependency on code that somebody else did, and that's 10 layers down in a dependency chain. And you have no real insight unless you're 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 spending time digging into it. You need to have something like a software composition analysis tool that's going to dig in there and analyze your dependencies and, and try to check for those common vulnerabilities that that at least you can tackle in some fashion. And uh, I just don't see that happening often. So, hopefully, now that I'm digging deeper into this, I'm getting more in tune with the AppSec world. I'm getting more in tune with the tool chains and how they apply to the CI CD pipelines and the impact on workflow it has with, for developers. Because that's another topic, and I'll, I'll touch on that now. Hopefully, I can start sharing some insights into how to ease that pain. Because if you really think about it, what developers hate the most. Is their workflow being blocked or, or stuff being added that's going to cause friction? Yeah. That's the other aspect of this. Nobody likes friction. If you're you know, if you're focused on, on building something and something is blocking you for no real good reason, that's where the pain starts to come in, starts to come in. It's either it's adding something to your your CI C D pipeline that is that is hard to do. Or it's slowing down the process, or it's not giving you the results that you want, and that's those are common things that I, I've heard in the industry where developers feel like sometimes security acts as a bit of this blocker to progress, at least progress in their, their eyes, and we need to figure out how do we streamline that so that security is not viewed as a, as a blocker. It's viewed as a normal part of the, the development process, and it should be. I mean, we think about that in almost every other aspect of our life. It's like I, you know, hey Ken, will you will you give me the password to your bank account right now and you know your two FA login at the same you know, sure probably not, might. right? You know, <laughs> you think of that as you know your your day to day, and mo- I'm going to say most developers think of it in the same way. I don't think most developers are going to give out the keys to the kingdom. So no. let's let's also add security as part of that normal day to day
0: of of um, software development. The more I think about it, the more I look, you know, the more the more I've thought about this over time, going back to the well, tying this point to the education in again in academia, is that I think that um you know it's it's we 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 they're they're all bugs. A bug is a bug, and yeah. functionality is functionality. And whether that's a security impacting bug or whether it's a customer user experience affecting bug, uh, bug is a bug and it should be addressed as such. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Seth repeatedly calls us, you know, security focused QA testers. And I think <laughs> that's an accurate way to look at it. And if we treated it, you know, as such, perhaps there would be less of like a, um, you know, security silo, you know, functional silo, mm-hmm. uh, user experience and UI, kind of the, the, the A-B testing, the prettiness of it all. Yeah, you know, that's its own silo. If we, if we just sort of just all treated it the same is like, it's, it's about quality software period. Um, maybe that would, maybe that would help. I, I don't know, but uh, the fact that we treat security as like a separate thing, or at least talk mm-hmm. about it like it is, we're doing ourselves a disservice, I think. Yeah, especially on the education front.
2: Yep, I, I agree. And I think um, I I actually like what you just said. It, it makes so much sense. And this is why I do believe that at the education level, it has to be kind of like just ingrained that security is part of the development process. It's not an afterthought. It's not, you know, it's not something that, oh, I'm going to take it as an elective course. No, it should just be part of graduating. It, you You should... I remember back when I was in college and I, there were some elective courses that I'm like, why do I have to take this? Or it wasn't even an elective. It was a required course. It's like, why do I have to take another course in English? I took all these courses in English all the way up to this point. Why do I have to take another one? And it's just a required course to can to, to pass and to get your, your degree. And so why can't security be that? I think it should just be part of it. And if it's never used. Okay. But at least you've instilled some of the core concepts of security Into the processes that these these folks, these computer science graduates, will use going forward. And one day somebody's gonna remember, it's like, oh, I learned that in college, because I've done that. I've learned, I was like, oh, I remember that, you know, and we should just make it a normal part of that conversation. Um, But I think the other part is also we need to, I think security people also have to understand what the business needs are for developers. That's one of the other challenges that I've actually seen there is this very sometimes security people can be very they draw their line in the sand this is where it is this is what you have to do and there's no flexibility there's no wiggle room and so uh, it can't be that way there are business requirements that have to happen in order for for just to have business continuity and so if we think about breaking the build are you breaking the build on a really like a prize zero? Or are you breaking the build on a, I don't know, on a pri four because some security person who is really stringent about their view their views of security say that pri four, it can't go anywhere. You know, when in reality, what should be breaking the build is a prize zero, pri one. Those are the ones that are gonna get you pwned. Well, that means that security folks at that point are being that blocker, that friction. And that's what that causes tensions when somebody's has a tight deadline. And, you know, I would hope nobody pushes code on a Friday afternoon, but I'm sure plenty of people still do it. Um, imagine it's Friday afternoon and you just want to get going for the weekend and somebody's blocking you from pushing that code because, I don't know, it was a cross-site scripting attack that really wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal and it's like, all right, somebody can pop an alert, but they can't, you know, there's no cross-site scripting. I mean, there's no uh, cross-request going on. There's nothing that's going to literally affect an internal system or a consumer of your software. It might be something that happens through a very obscure way of doing it. Does that, should that break the build? Should that stop progress? No, what you should be doing is letting them release making sure you note it, making sure you, you analyze the severity of it, and then making sure you do a complete, you know, follow-up scan on your whole entire code base to determine what the net effect is of whatever you just found. You ha- there has to be a it's, – it's the whole balance, you know. There has to be balances, just like in day-to-day life. You have to have balances in situations, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I think part of the problem is that uh... – that, okay, so so you're talking about the tooling that's going in, that we're blocking builds. Um, management is always kind of looking for that silver bullet of, hey, yeah. if I do X, yeah. then I'm secure, right? Mm-hmm. And so like the nuance that you're talking about, the understanding of the application, um, I, I mean, again, you're looking kind of to bring the conversation full circle for that security champion that understands both the development and the security what's going on is able to make that decision. Um, but that person is, you know, in most organizations is somewhat of a unicorn, right? Like they yes. may or may not exist. And yep. number two, if they do exist, it, it's probably way more expensive than buying a tool and throwing it in to just block the developer builds whenever a, a possible cross site scripting You know, vulnerability is found. So it's that it's that it's kind of these competing priorities that are all going on with how much does it cost the business? Again, security is viewed as a cost center, or you know, it's not viewed as a value add. Um, We're not looking at quality as a value add either. We're looking at hey, it's preventing me from pushing out code from the development perspective. And again, as a as a security person, and even like with a development background. I have a hard time solving that problem in a way yeah. that, that covers all of the needs, all, all of these competing priorities and competing needs that are going on. Um, and so, so what I'm asking there is and where I, where I wanted to go is, you know, what do you suggest? Right. Like I've had we've had Manico on and he you know, he's talking about the one true framework that's going to solve all the XSS problems in the world. Right. And I'm always like, yes, but there's that one developer that's going to need a Mm -hmm. special use case and he's Mm going to push code on a Friday afternoon and he's going to be pissed at security because he couldn't actually push that out. So yeah. what do you suggest? How do you, how do you solve that problem? You know, what it, you know, and of course you got to solve all the problems today, right? That's why we <laughs> asked you on. So go. Yeah.
2: That that's such a hard one and and you're right. It you know when when you were talking about that, you know what it reminded me of and I'm dating myself a little bit is like when when uh managers would say no one ever got fired for for picking IBM. Yep. Okay. And and it's that saying. It's like no one ever got fired for picking Microsoft, or nobody ever got fired for picking Bear code. There you go. Yeah. Uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no one ever got fired. For it. Exactly. But you know the, the the premise is that I I I I know a lot of people in management, uh, people who are focused on the business. Uh, they they want that silver bullet, and none of these solutions are silver bullets because ultimately. Uh, <laughs> what deploys the systems or what builds the systems are still humans. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be things that are going to get by. And even the most sophisticated systems still lets, uh, lets bugs go through because the bottom line is, I mean, Ken, you said it perfectly. A bug is a bug or a bug and it's, that's what they are. They're bugs. And how many, you look at the exploit DB database, how many, how many bugs are in there? Because that's what every one of those vulnerabilities is a bug. And, It's there's no silver bullet. I don't have a clear answer on how to convince management that this one system is going to cover every scenario, and how to balance that conversation between business and security and developers. And it it that's a that's a tough one. If I had that answer right now. Man, I'd I I'm gonna use that for I'd probably be a mid I'd probably be a multimillionaire right now. If I say yeah. if I was able to s- solve that one right now, like you know, I I'd I'd probably be on an island right now, you know, next to maybe Larry Ellison or uh Richard Branson or something like that, you know. <laughs> I'd be waving at you from a from, you know, my the top of a coconut tree or something like that, you know. Yeah. Kinda...
1: Well yeah, and I I mean that's the that, that that's just it right like without yeah. some sort of a program in place the problems don't get solved right and mm-hmm. it's uh i don't know it, it it's the fight that we're constantly you know, yeah. d- dealing with and um, it is a battle
2: yeah i was i was talking you know the 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 person who took a chance on me at microsoft uh, her her name's Ann Johnson and um fantastic person corporate vice president of um of business development for security compliance and identity, and so one of the one of the things she 's an advocate of is diversity in in security bringing people in with different perspectives and uh, different backgrounds different cultural backgrounds different just different viewpoints in general and that 's one of the i think one of the reasons she brought me in was because I came from a developer lens and I just had a totally different view on what security was like, and even to this day i I listen to some of the, some people who have been around security for a long time and you know sometimes I take things in and I'm like oh that makes sense and then sometimes I look at it with a skewed eye because I feel like mm, that doesn't seem very applicable nowadays. Yeah. And that's what we need and I think we need more people like that and and it has to be across the board. I don't see it as just like a security problem. We need people with different perspectives from senior leadership to the person that is just hired to from the very first job to, to build the app out. And by having these different and unique perspectives, that's the only way that we're going to solve it. It right now you have, a am uh, going to call it um, business technical debt. Chris Ang, our, our, you know, our chief research officer likes to use the term technical debt and it's so appropriate. How much technical debt is out there? I mean, I, I can only imagine my, one of my apps sitting out there, you know, and I'm like, Oh God, please kill it or something like that. But it might be working.
0: Um, That's how if, I feel when it, someone submits an issue to a GitHub project I haven't maintained in forever. It's yes, like, oh, yes. crap. And And so
2: that, that debt is there. Not only on the technical side, but on the business side, it's people who um, who have been doing things the same way over and over. And that's one of the, one of the things I loved about Satya when he took over Microsoft was he said we need to embrace growth mindset. We need to start looking at things differently. We need to uh, embrace people for what the value that they bring to this the problem, and because that's how we're going to end up solving these very complex solutions and. Um, I was talking to Sam King, the CEO of VeriCode, just yesterday, actually. And we were having a conversation about um, some changes that we that I think internally we need to make. And she was like, absolutely, we need to make these changes because this is, this is how we're going to succeed and how we're going to evolve. And I said, you sound just like Satya right now. And she goes, I, I, absolutely, I love the growth mindset. And she's a big advocate of that. And I think it, when you start looking at business leaders, business leaders who embrace that growth mindset aspect and start analyzing the business problems with a different lens and bringing in people with different lenses from diverse perspectives. That's how you, be, you stay competitive. I, I, I'm going to say that, you know, when I joined Microsoft, and that was 10 years ago uh, for the first five years, I, you know, it was, I, I it was just running on, I felt like running on uh, what is it running on neutral or mm-hmm. just, it was just coasting. and, Part of that was because Microsoft had been doing the same thing over and over for, for decades. And Satya came in and just shook up Microsoft. Now, mind you, you have an aircraft carrier trying to turn, out, turn on a dime. But nonetheless, he managed to do it. And it's because he came in with a totally different perspective on how business should be run and where, where technology is heading to. And I think that's one of the reasons that you see a company like Microsoft evolving. And I see that in, in Vericode right now. I see that they are trying to shift the way that they think about application security, about the developer marketplace, about how developers need to have a seat at the security table, which is something that for a long time they haven't had. I know that in my, in my time, I, I was never brought into a conversation about security. So let, let's put aside the fact that I wasn't, I was invested in security. I was never asked to come in and say, "Hey, would you be part of this conversation about security so i i there's there's that mindset that we also need to think of i i would I would definitely press security professionals to be proactive, go out to the developers and say, Hey, listen, you know, and I know that I know many that have done this, and they've received their share of pushback because developers are oh, we can be a rare breed sometimes, you know <laughs> um but I would still say continue to push on it because it's important. And you're going to have those people who are going to self-select into a security champion role. They're going to be interested in going out and learning about what does security actually mean? And look, I'm a great example of that. I, I got I peaked, My interest got peaked in security and I was leading the developer relations team for the edge browser. And, I had been talking about cross browser development for years and I was like, all right, I'm, I don't want to talk about this anymore. It's been played. Everybody talks about it. I want to talk, I want to dig into something different and security piqued my interest. And by digging into application security, that's how I got excited about security as a whole. And that's to some extent how I became for all intents a security champion where I want to talk with developers about security. I want to explain to them why it's important. I want to talk at their level and their terms to make them understand this is how you do it in, in a way that's going to continue to make you productive, that it's not going to be a burden. You're not going to have some person tapping on your shoulders saying, you didn't type this in the right way. No, it's, there's, there's ways of doing it in a way that everybody can be happy and, and it benefits the organization as a whole.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there is. And that's, I I mean, I think, you know, just to kind of put a bow on things, uh, you know, cause we have been going for an hour. It always goes by so quick. And I know we didn't even get to all the topics we wanted to talk about, but that's okay. That's, you'll uh, just that's have okay. to have
2: me. You have to have me back on your show then. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's
1: yeah. I mean. Yeah. We, we still need to talk about that transition.
0: Um will you and Dave argue about training since that was yeah. his, uh, <laughs> there you his go. Thing last time he was on. So there, there you go. go. Yeah. But to put,
1: kind of to put a bow on it is, you know, it takes those people and it takes that push and actually reaching out to people as people and Mm -hmm. not necessarily as, you know, uh, uh, an adversary or an antagonist, right? Like it's, uh, it's recognizing that they're just trying to do their job, just like you're trying to do yours. And both of you want to make the situation better. And if that's the case, you're going to find common ground. You're going to be able to improve things. Um, I mean, I mean, just recently, personally, right? Like, I've got a couple of companies that we work with, that we've worked with over a couple of years, and the most recent round of testing and code review that we've been doing for them, like, we are like seriously struggling to find good recommendation or good vulnerabilities in their code because they've implemented everything that we've asked them to do the last couple of years, and now it's become this. All right, I need another set of eyes. Okay? Like right. just to what you're saying from an inclusion perspective is all right, you know, guess what? Like you are doing what we see as you know security as being security conscious. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be uh, you know, there's gonna have to be a shift. And like you never like to do that as a as a consulting org because it's almost mm-hmm. like it it's almost admitting all right, it's time for you to bring in somebody else. But that's going to be one of the recommendations that comes out of this is, all right, like I know some other, I have some other partners that can look at it this next time around, because as far as I, as, as we're concerned, you're doing what you need to do.
2: Right. And, and that does but that yeah. comes with maturity though. That's, that's, a, that shows maturity there where you're like, okay, now you're making, this is why you're an advocate. I, I yeah. see you as an advocate. You're actually going out and advocating for the customer and saying, uh, you know, we're, we've reached a certain point where we want to make sure that you continue to ha- evolve in your application security lifecycle, And we want to help you do that. That's, that's what an advocate's about. The advocate's not there to position themselves as the, the all-knowing person. There's just no way. The advocate, I, I like to call myself a bridge maker. You know, it's like, I, I like building bridges. I, I would rather be able a, point somebody in a good direction, then try to, try, to be the, uh, try to lead them to believe that I know everything about it. And I, I, I do that all the time. I build bridges. I, 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 pref- I, li- I really like sending somebody your way for a specific topic, Ken's way for another one. Um, I, one, of the, one of the things that I, I do is I build a very big network. And the reason I build that big network is because that's how I can point people in the right direction. And, you know, ultimately, if if you become that bridge maker, people will come to you and they'll want to know more about you because they know that you can help them solve problems. And if I can do that, that's then I've won. I've, I've won in that sense professionally because I feel like then I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm helping people solve their problems. So, you know, I it's a tough challenge. Uh, you know, I I have. um I have a new manager, Larry Weber. He's uh, he just recently came over from Amazon. I was reporting to our chief marketing officer, Alana Anderson, before, and Alana's, you know, it's it, Alana wants results right now, and I'm like, Alana, give me time, give me time, let me build my network here, and then I'm we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna help developers get better, but you know, it's just I I think what the reason that there's this pressing concern and desire to solve these problems is because of some of the things you've mentioned people people want to build secure software they want to see it and there's still this this chasm between security and developers and uh there's hope that folks can come in and help kind of cross that chasm build that bridge across it so that both teams can solve the problems that they're mandated to do. And that there's collaboration and cooperation. It's not competition; it's cooperation. And collaboration is a critical aspect of it. You, you have to know each other. You have to get to know the ebbs and flows of each other. And that's the only way to solve it.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to say. Uh, I think Ken will be back, but um, I'm sorry. I, I know we're, we're running up against it, but I, I like that recommendation, right? Is be a bridge builder, right? Mm-hmm. Collaborate with the other side and things will get better. I, I mean, we've all seen that happen in our careers. Yep. So, you know, I would just, I would just encourage people to, uh, to keep at it and to do that. Um, good. Well, any, any last minute thoughts, right? It's been a great conversation. I feel like, well, thank- you know, we, we haven't solved the world's problems quite yet, <laughs> sure. but we're getting there. So
2: we'll get there for sure.
1: Yeah. Um, where, where can people find you? Um and yeah just kind of wrap things up so
2: yeah the the easiest way to find me is on twitter and uh you just go to my handle which is r e y bango so mm-hmm. just my name put together uh, i i tend to tweet a lot there about security and i tweet tweet about all different types of security but uh, if, if there was one recommendation i can make to anybody who's in in this space is to explore security holistically don't there's areas that you're going to be passionate about. Totally get it. I, I I would just say poke around in different areas because it's interesting to get that unique perspective. I, I've been doing pen testing, uh, AppSec work, red teaming, OSINT. Uh, I got to do some, uh, IR, a little bit of IR work when I was at Microsoft that had a very interesting scale. <laughs> that was some scary stuff there. Uh, and, and being able to t- at least touch them. And I'm not an expert in any of them, but, but, but the fact that I've got had these diverse experiences gives me a whole different perspective on how security touches so many different aspects of the business. And so I would say definitely, I, I, Take the time to explore these different areas. That's what's going to make you a more well-rounded security professional. You're going to be able to solve a whole lot more problems if you just explore. Take some time. And it doesn't mean you have to, you know, switch careers entirely. It just means, like, if you have an hour, go out and just explore what, you know, OSIT is. What does OSINT actually mean? We all hear the term OSIT. What does it actually mean? Have you dug into, have you dug into Shodan? Have you actually gone into showdown and done a search? And if you haven't, I think you might sit there and like, oh my God, freak out when you find out how many, you know, RDP ports are wide open, you know, and, yep. and they're just there for, you know, for the poking around. Spend some time doing that. And then, yeah, definitely continue with the education aspect. I mean, that's that's one of the things that I continuously do. I do things like uh, hack the box and try hack me. And then more recently, I'm doing security labs on Veracode. That's one of the things that we're, we're proactively trying to do is help to educate developers through um, through our system called security labs. And we recently came out with a community edition and it has several challenges, including juice shop on there. So you don't need to have, you know, spin up a VM and things like that to do some of the, some of the things you might uh, need a VM to do with other, other uh, hacking labs. So I definitely say, check out security labs, see that, see how you feel about that, go through some of the challenges. Uh, and we're constantly improving that. And if there's feedback, if there's, uh, please send it to me. Send it to just go to Ray Bango and say, "Hey Ray, I was doing security labs, and I'd like to see X, Y, and Z." We just had a, um, a, a hackathon with a bunch of universities, and the you know the UK teams really kicked butt, man. The UK teams, you should have seen. Warwick University was they were on fire, so more power to them. I don't know what's going on in the, you know, over in the UK, but they're, they're teaching them really well that those teams, uh, they, they must have a good security, uh, security curriculum in place. Maybe that's, 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 stuff we're talking about there.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, some, some places do it really well for sure.
2: So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, well, good. Uh, Ray, we do, we will, we do want to be cognizant of your time. Thank you so no much for coming on today. Um, and like you said uh reach out uh via Twitter, I mean to Ray or to either of us, join our slack channel um if you want to c- keep the conversation going. I know actually Dave's been posting in there during the episode as well Ray, oh hi. thanks Dave he's been listening, and um yeah, otherwise, you know be a bridge builder. I like that I yeah,
2: I don't, I don't
1: put the bow on it but um I, yeah. yeah bridge builder is important building those bridges yep. yep, exactly um. But otherwise, thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, Ken, any last minute thoughts before we close it out?
0: Nope. Thank you. I appreciate you joining, Ray. No, Thank thanks for having me. I, I
2: I really appreciate being on here. I, it's I love I, I love these conversations because I help. It, it helps to kind of shine a light on on the need for greater education, uh, and hopefully we can make some progress. I'm hoping to. I'm hoping I can get out there and uh, help people get better.
1: Yep. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks everybody. We'll see, we'll see everybody next week.